Hello and welcome to another episode of The Heart Chamber. I am your host, Boots Knighton. I am really excited to share my conversation with Michelle Sheely with you today. Michelle was 44 years old when she was diagnosed with heart disease. At the time, she was an avid runner, an outdoor enthusiast, and a vegetarian. She did not fit the mold for someone with heart disease. It took four years, four blockages, and four stents before she was diagnosed with a myocardial bridge in 2019. In that same year, in December of 2019, she had open heart surgery, and she is now advocating for women's heart health. Michelle is a community educator for Women Heart, the National Coalition for Women with Heart Disease. And she's also a single mom of a 12-year-old daughter. She's also a PTA social chair. And on top of that, she also works as head of sales for an organic dairy company. Michelle and I cover everything in this conversation from the frustrations of participating in the medical system to the fear of dying to the thrills of not only living, but thriving, what it's like to be a single mom, work full time, and still manage her heart. Thanks again for tuning in today. And if you like what you hear, I'd appreciate it if you would subscribe, leave a review, and donate at www.theheartchamberpodcast.com. Thanks so much. Let's dive in. Thank you, Michelle, for joining today on The Heart Chamber. Michelle and I first met on Facebook, thanks to the Facebook support group. And Michelle is going to share her story of her heart journey with us today. Oh, thank you so much, Boots, for having me. Any chance that I get to spread the word on heart disease and help anybody who might be going through the things that we've gone through or has questions and always here for, you know, peer support and really just getting the education out there because I don't want people to suffer like I did. I felt like I suffered for a long time and through a lot of self-advocacy, I finally got my, the correct diagnosis. So let me just go tell you what happened. So in 2016, I wasn't your heart disease candidate at all. I was an avid runner. I was a vegetarian. I played soccer. I, I'm four days a week. I was very much in shape. And, you know, I started having chest pain when I was running. And I thought maybe I had pulled something from lifting weights. And I thought, oh, you know, I should, probably should go in and get this checked out. Well, they did an EKG and it was completely normal. And they gave me some Pepsid and told me to go home. Two days later, I have police knocking on my door. And when I asked why, they said, are is Dr. Reddy your doctor? And I said, yes. And the woman, the police officer said, Dr. Reddy has been trying to get a hold of you for two days and she can't, you have not called her back. Your EKG is not normal and they need you to give them a call. Within an hour, I was in the ER and the next day I had a heart cath to find out that I was almost 100% blocked in my LAD artery. So I got my first stent. Okay. So from there, I dropped 40 pounds. I was even, you know, stepping up even more with exercise and diet. I became a plant-based vegan. And a year later, that same stent is blocked. That same LED artery is blocked again. I get a second stent. Nine months later, I'm running and my heart is going or starts going erratic. I'm in AFib. I have, you know, three months after that, I have a cardiac ablation to fix, you know, the timing of my heart. 
two weeks after the cardiac ablation, I'm in heart attack symptoms again. I have another blocked artery. So I get another stent. And this is not supposed to be happening because my cholesterol, total cholesterol is like is 70 now. Like I said, I'm a plant-based vegan. I'm doing all the right things. And we were just going, I said, what is going on? And so, you know, I'm back in the ER six months later and for chest pain again. I mean, this is all heart attack symptoms. And my LAD artery is blocked. And this will be the third step that I have to get in it. But luckily, I got a new doctor from Stanford who had just come over to our hospital. And he said, you know, I think there's something more going on. I want to look further into this. And so when he went in with the heart cath again, he goes, oh, has anybody ever told you you have a myocardial bridge? And I said, I had no idea what that was. And so they, they sent me to Stanford, you know, for further testing. And I did the scans. And I, you know, they were going to see if that was to determine if I needed the bridge study. And, you know, I'm t- sitting there with Dr. Snicker and she said, based on your scans, you don't need the bridge study. And I said, you know, Dr. Snicker, look, I want the bridge study. And here's the reason why. I know that my LAD artery has is occluding by 7% a month on average. That is the average that it is occluded three times. You cannot do bypass graft surgery on an artery that is you know, in the heart muscle, it, it won't work. And you know, that, and you know that. And so what's happening is this is going to be a race against time. I'm going to be occluded. And then, so well, I don't know what to do because I'm mm-hmm. either going to die or mm-hmm. I'm going to be able to have open heart surgery to unroof my artery. And that is going to help. And she said, okay. And I said, but we don't know because we can't really tell if we don't have the bridge study. And she said, you know what, Michelle? If you want the bridge study, we're going to give you the bridge study. Within an hour after the bridge study, when I'm in recovery, Dr. Snooker comes and sits next to me and said, I'm so glad you had us do the bridge study because there is so much damage to your LAD artery that if you don't have unroofing surgery soon, your artery is going to collapse and there'll be nothing we can do for you. Wow. Yes. It was, it was very profound. And this is where self-advocacy is so important because I read on, you know, the myocardial bridge group, and this isn't isolated to the myocardial bridge group. This is heart disease everywhere, especially in women that, Mm -hmm. you know, we don't need these surgeries. You don't need this. You know, these aren't myocardial bridges aren't a problem, but they are Um, in a certain Mm -hmm. subset of the population that has them. They are. And so really pushing and pushing and pushing really got me to get the diagnosis that I needed. And so I had unroofing surgery in December of 2019. And I don't think anybody could have prepared me for what that surgery was going to do to my body and how my body was going to react and how long it was going to take to recover. And I was in good shape. I was young. (laughs) So and then, you know, two months after or three months after heart surgery, then COVID happens. So it's been a stressful recovery. It's been a t- definitely a difficult recovery. But, you know, I finally got running again. I'm decided to, I'm no longer running. I'm walking now. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Riding my bike, hiking, those kind of things. I can finally do those. But I'm definitely not where I was before I had heart surgery. But yeah. what was happening was because I was an avid runner and running so much and getting my heart rate over, you know, 150 beats per minute is I was actually doing more damage to my artery than good. Is that because of the stent that were in place? No, it wasn't. It was because when you have a myocardial bridge, you get turbulent blood flow in 
the area that is in the my of that LED that's in the myocardium because mm-hmm. the heart every time it beats it's occluding that artery and so you're not getting great blood flow and so what's happening I think of it as if you're walking and you have a shoe that's rubbing up against your ankle and you're getting a blister ah so I mean that's the metaphor that I can or the analogy that I can use for that is that irritation was happening. And so it's almost like a turkey baster was taking that plaque and that buildup and pushing it above the LAD artery where, because it was just like a few centimeters above where the artery is, was, is no longer in the myocardium where it would get occluded. And that's a finding that if you look in all of Dr. Schnicker's research and the research at Stanford, the people who do have occluded arteries because of their myocardial bridge and the plaque it is just a few centimeters above above where the artery comes out of, of, of the heart. So that's what mm-hmm. was happening. So ever since I was little, I always had pins and needles in my feet, really cold feet. I just thought my coloring was my coloring. But my mom said when she saw me in the hospital after I had been unroofed, she said, my God, you have color in your face. She had never mm-hmm. seen color in my face. And, and remind uh, me and the audience how old you were when you had your unroofing surgery. I was 47. Okay. So this all started when I was 44. I'm mm-hmm. 50 now. So mm-hmm. yeah, so from 44 to 47, it definitely took that long to find. So three to four years, people, they were to find the correct diagnosis for me. And that's what I'm hearing. You know, that was not true for me. Thankfully, you know, the Facebook support group for myocardial bridging existed during my situation and I used it to help inform me so I could better advocate for myself. And I, my process was relatively quick, but on average, I'm hearing it's years for people like yourself. That just has to change. Well, it's so much needless suffering. It, it is. But I'll tell you the reason why it takes that long. And one of the reasons is, and this is one of the questions, is being that I am a community educator for Women Heart, who is the National Coalition mm-hmm. of Women with Heart Disease. We do training at the Mayo Clinic at the Women's Heart Health um, Heart Center um, with Dr. Sharon Hayes, and she's the head of the Women's Heart Clinic. And so we do an extensive training on all types of women's heart disease. And I asked her about this. I said, why? And I, and I asked the interventionist as well. I, and these are all women who have, work with women patients who said, why does it take so long to get that diagnosis? And they said, well, it's because they have to be 100% sure that it's the myocardial bridge causing the issues. Because for mm-hmm. many of those patients, it's not. Myocardial bridges don't cause issues, but there is a certain subset of the population that does have them where the issues are pre- can be pretty severe, but they have to rule out everything else first. So that's why it takes, they said it takes so long to really, for those who have to get unroofed and mm-hmm. they're that severe because they, they, they're they not just, you know, when they decide to have open you up and have open heart surgery to unroof. I mean, that is after they've exhausted all possible options. I and mean, we know it's, a right. de- it's definitely a tough surgery. I mean, if I had to do it again, obviously I would because I needed to. But if there was an alternative, I definitely would have taken the alternative. But that's what they were telling me was that is why it's just they have to rule out everything else before, you know, because they can't say for sure it is the myocardial brick. There's just so many tests and so many things that they have to run to make to make sure that is the correct thing because that is the last possible option is to open someone up. I mean, I had basically 
three inches. I don't know the exact centimeters, but it was the equivalent of about three inches. That is significant, Michelle. Yeah, it, it was severe. That's why they said when Dr. Sticker came out of the bridge of the bridge study, she said, it's much longer than we thought. And it's a little bit deeper than we thought. And I said, OK. And, then and I when, hear that, too. Like, yes. Most people are the heart cath and the heart CT can only tell you but so much. And most of the time when people come out of surgery, they're told it was way, way more significant than originally believed. Oh, absolutely. And I went in and I my surgeon, who was fabulous, who worked with Dr. Schnicker um, and Dr. Boyd, did, you know, probably like 500 in roofings, you know, before he went to our hospital. And that's one of the reasons they hired him was to come over and kind of perform these rare heart surgeries. Mm -hmm. He said we went in and it was longer than we thought. And they had a video. They took a video of them. go. He showed it to me of, of them unroofing my heart. And it was just crazy how the artery, once it's unroofed, just starts filling with blood. It's just, I wish I had that video because it was pretty profound. Wow. So did you, did the stent stay in? Yes. So I have three okay. stents in my LAD. Um, I mean, they're not going to come out. Can't take them out. No. Um, and I mean, just, I've had multiple scans, multiple treadmill tests. I've had a, a few heart cats, no, a couple of heart cats since my unroofing mm -hmm. surgery. And it's because I've had so many post-surgery. I have pretty severe vasospasms. And so I had one day where I just had round-the-clock vasospasms. I had about eight of them. And so they thought for sure that there was a blockage. And they went in and they're like, your arteries look better than they did before you had unroofing surgery. So they're, it's getting better. But I do have a rare heart disease. I do have vasospastic angina that is controlled by multiple different medications. And it's honestly like biohacking our way through it to figure out what's going to work because things will work, mm -hmm. a certain cocktail of medication will work for a while and then it won't. And then we have to adjust and hope that, that something else works. But things are good, going really well now. I have a good cocktail of medication that's working and has been working probably for the last four months. But just to give you some context, I was having vasospasm probably once every one to two weeks that I would have to take like two nitroglycerin tablets for them to go away. The episodes would last about a half hour. And I it's been about four months since I've had one. That sounds really difficult from one vasospasm friend to another. Ouch. Yeah, it's very difficult to manage because mm -hmm. they kind of sideline you. And you never oh, yeah. know when they're going to happen. I mean, this is living. This is living with heart disease. And I now <laughs> have Doctor Nadiri. She's a female heart specialist. She specializes in rare women's heart diseases. And even where is she located? She's in Cal in Northern California. She's at Kaiser Permanente. So I had Kaiser, and we call Kaiser mm -hmm. Santa Clara, like Stanford South, because they pull all of their doctors and surgeons from Stanford. And okay. Dr. Nadiri works with UCSF, Stanford. She's well known throughout the country. And even Dr. Hayes at the Mayo Clinic, you know, in Rochester was like, oh, you have Dr. Nadiri. You're in very good hands. And she told me, look, as women age and they have vasospasms, they with when you change and you're going going through perimenopause or menopause, these things tend to ramp up. And then they tend to level off afterwards. She said, 
why don't you talk, talk to your OBGYN and have them run your hormones and see how those are, what's going on. And we did that. And what we found, and this is obviously really specific to women and not men, was that whenever, when I was having vasospasms, I had, was all estrogen and no progesterone. So she's given me progesterone to level it out. And that's, that's when I stopped having vasospasms. So did you start the progesterone at four months ago? Yep. And it has okay. nothing, nothing to do with heart disease, right? It's a birth control. It's right. a birth control thing. But like I said, I'm biohacking my way through this. And I talked to Dr. Nadiri and I said, look, I know that my heart disease there's never going to be a cure. And I know there's never going to be a cure because it costs hundreds of millions of dollars to do research. And the only way that heart research or any sort of medical research is done is A, if there's a grant that's coming from private donors or pharmaceutical companies, or B, if pharmaceutical companies run, run those studies. So if there's not enough cause yeah. or not possible return on the investment for them to run these trials, to possibly come up with a drug, you're, you're not going to find a cure. So you have to really figure out what's going to work for you. And that's what I know I have to do. And my doctor yeah. said, I'm, you know, I hate to say this, Michelle, but I'm glad you realized that because your issue is so rare that they're not going to find a cure for you. You've just got to figure out how you're going to manage it and live with it. Whew, that's, I mean, in one way, you know, go us for being advocates and standing in our power, right? Like, no matter if there's a cure or not, we we still are powerful beings, and we our right. bodies can tell us what it need, what the body needs. At the same time, that's kind of depressing. That's just the state of the healthcare system. You know, it's the state of the healthcare system in in America, mm -hmm. and and I want to say it's kind of the state of the healthcare system. I mean in many different parts of the world too, because mm -hmm. there's just not enough, there's just not enough knowledge about myocardial bridges and what we go through. And thank goodness that Dr. Schnicker is doing more research and more research is coming to light and they're showing that there are more problems, you know, but I always get this. This is the famous quote from doctors that that medicine's not supposed to do that. That's not a side effect of the medicine because I'll take certain medications and I'll have a vasospasm. Like I took a steroid medication for a gut issue that I had and boom, I started getting vasospasms again and I stopped it and then I didn't get vasospasms. And I said, I had a vasospasm. My body was reacting to it and they said, that, well, that's not a side effect. They said, of course, it's not a side effect. They're not going to have people with heart disease in their trials. They have mm -hmm. healthy individuals in their trials. So, of course, they're not finding these side effects in healthy individuals. So my what I say to people is, look, you have heart disease. If you have a myocardial bridge, you have heart disease. It is a congenital abnormality of the heart. Yeah, That is a form of heart mm -hmm. disease. You have to find what works for you, whether it's Ayurvedic medicine, holistic medicine. I always said Western medicine will save me. Eastern medicine will sustain me. Oh, I like that. I'm going to steal that. <laughs> you have to find what works for you because yeah. there is not going to be a cure. And if there is going to be a cure, it's probably not going to be for 20, 30 years. It's going to be a long mm -hmm. time from now. So there's a lot of time in between that we have to find out how to best manage our symptoms, how to manage our life. But for those individuals who are 
having symptoms, being, you know, wondering if they should be unroofed, having the bridge study, wondering, you know, what they need to do. I mean, it's advocate, 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 learn all you can about this, look about your symptoms, learn everything about, you know, this, the disease, heart disease, the bridge, myocardial bridges. And when a doctor tells you, no, you push, you've got to push. And I always say this thing. Mm -hmm. I always say, your doctors are part of your medical team. They are, you have a PhD in your body, in your own body. You know how your body works. And, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're making guesses as well from their internal Rolodex of what they know from medical school. And in medical school, we know that myocardial bridges are taught that they're benign. They are taught that sometimes, you know, now that, you know, it's finding now that they are not benign in some part, some population of the people that have them however you know there's have you ever seen the big sick i haven't yet that's on my list okay you gotta watch it because in that movie there is a scene in there where the girl goes in and she's in a coma and they're trying to figure out what's going on with her and her mom goes these doctors they're just winging it too they're just like us they're no different from who we are they're winging it just as much as we are at work and I mm-hmm. I had never heard a more true statement because, I mean, yes, they have medical degrees and they, I mean, they're very smart and they know what they're doing and they, and they know how these, you know, the heart works and the body works, but you know your body and you know what's normal and what's not normal and you just have to push. Yeah. And it's, you need to get I, a new doctor, get a new doctor. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I think I'm just thinking like, how can we instill like, how do you know when you need to push against these doctors, right? Because I'm just thinking about listeners for this podcast and everyone's at a different stage in knowing their body and being in self-awareness. I mean, that just isn't something, you know, that we're taught. Unfortunately, I had already been through a couple of other health issues prior to my heart. So I had had a lot of practice basically being able to check in with my own body and know that something wasn't right. But for, and also I am well-educated and I have an undergraduate degree in biology. So, you know, I, I kind of felt like I was one of the lucky ones that went into this with some training (laughs) on how to like, you know, navigate the medical system. But what about those who, you know, this, this is their first health issue, or maybe they, didn't have they didn't go to college or they they majored in something not related to like the medical field like what do they do i mean how many times have we ever heard a story of someone went to their doctor multiple times for a stomach ache and they finally went to a different doctor and they had a tumor the size of a grapefruit or you know i mean too many times it's too many times too many times and that's where in our culture we've been taught that the doctors are like we we treat them as if they know everything. So if they say, well, no, this is what you have, or they they give you a diagnosis or something, we're taught not to question it. And I think it's really important that you think of the doctors and the medical community as part of your team. You're hiring your team. If I'm a sales manager, I'm hiring the best people for my sales team. And I'm Mm -hmm. going to have people who are collaborative, who work with me as a team and who listen. Now, it's the same with my medical team. You know, I had a surgeon who really listened. I had 
a doctor, my cardiologist was fantastic. He really listened to me to the point where he said, in my expertise, I can no longer help you. I need to send you to this woman's heart specialist for women with rare heart diseases. And, and he sent me to her. You know, he put his training aside to make sure that I got the best care. So I think it's push. I mean, just if they're not willing to look at other things, if you're still having issues and, and your doctors aren't willing to look at other things, it's time to revisit new doctors because I was in a class with 30 women when we went to our Women Heart Symposium back in October. Every single woman was there because they, she advocated for herself. She was safe and, and, and because she was an advocate for her mm -hmm. own body. It wasn't the first time she went to the doctor, the second or the third time. It was she kept pushing. Some of those women changed doctors, got second opinions. So I mean, I, I would say that all the women who were in that room and went to that symposium, didn't, it didn't matter. They knew something was wrong with her body. I think your gut will tell you. Follow oh, your yeah. gut. If something's not right, it's not. Well, that's all great. And, you know, just thinking about my personal story, at first, I didn't want to believe something was wrong because I was in the best shape of my life. And, you know, newcomers to this podcast go back to episodes one and two to hear my story in depth. But I remember when I eventually landed in front of the first cardiologist I ever saw, he told me what he was going to go looking for. Mm -hmm. And hoped that he wasn't going to find up any of it. And the two things that he was looking for were myocardial bridging and a bicuspid aortic valve. Okay. I end up having both. Oh, wow. And he said that the bicuspid valve wasn't a problem, which he was correct on that. So we're just monitoring it. Right. But then when he found out the my that I had a myocardial bridge, he said that that wasn't a problem either. And told me just to take anxiety medication. And, you know, that's when I am, I just knew that that wasn't right, like deep down. And, right. but here's the thing it's like I had to let go of like this belief that I had that take the first doctor because he has a specialist degree, take his word. I just didn't feel good about how he was treating me. But I had to let go of the authority of it all. Yes. And I think that's what a 100%. lot of people, especially women, you know, there's yes. like some authority there that just needs to go away. Like yes. we are you're the authority the, of the our authority. bodies. You are the authority of your body. Yep. Not the doctor. Yes. The doctor and, might have an opinion. Right. And that's when you have to, like I said, push. And if you have to change doctor, you have to change doctor. You got to get a second mm -hmm. opinion. Well, what really upset me, Michelle, was that I, so I was reading all my own reports and I'm finding out through conversations I did that the same thing. <laughs> people usually don't read their reports. You have to they read just your go, reports. You have to. And you might have to go to Google school and like look up yes. terms and yes. it's worth the time. It is. Uh, hey, if anything, you're broadening your vocabulary. Like, what's wrong with that? Right. right. But go to, go to you know, Google medical school and teach yourself how to read these reports because I read first about the myocardial bridge uh, the night that the report came in after my heart CT. And I kept waiting for the doctor's office to call. He had his like nurse call me and say, you know, the, the doctor doesn't feel like anything's wrong. You just need to keep working with your therapist. And by that point, I couldn't even breathe on a walk. And 
I'll just never forget it. And this this doctor had trained at Stanford with Dr. Schnitker. And here he's telling me that myocardial bridging wasn't a problem. And so I I referred myself to Stanford. I asked him to refer me, and he told me that that wasn't appropriate. Why? So I called Dr. Schnitger myself. Like, that's what I had to do. And that's what you you have to do. You have to just say, move aside. I'm taking over now. You are fired. Yeah. (laughs) It's okay to fire your doctor. It is a thousand percent okay. And to get another one, they're on your team. If somebody wasn't doing what you needed on your team to move you towards your goals, they would not be the right fit and you would get rid of that. It is the same Mm -hmm. thing for your medical team. I mean, I know that I have a medical team at Stanford that if I ever have to leave Kaiser, I can go to Stanford and I'm going to be fine because I have a great medical team there as well. But Mm -hmm. it took years of sifting through and pushing and studying. I mean, I was reading journals out of like the Chinese School of Medicine. I took my data. I knew that doctors needed data. That's what they responded to. They didn't respond to feelings. They responded to if I could calculate my data. And so I had charts and I captured my own data and I'd say, here, look, this is this is my data. I mean, and that's what they really responded to. And that's when I, I think when I told Dr. Schnicker, look, I'm including a 7% a month on average based on based on the data that I points that I've taken for myself. I think that really was like, oh, okay, you know, because they can respond to that. And mm-hmm. if you collect your own data, I mean, I don't care if it's on your iPhone in your notes, you know, whatever it is, have your own chart, create your own spreadsheet. That's going to, that, those numbers, if you can give your doctor numbers, that's concrete data versus your facts. Wise words. Absolutely. And, you know, because the the truth of the matter is they also have to be like you were saying earlier in our conversation they have to make sure that the surgery is going to fix the problem because they i mean sadly they have to worry about malpractice but it would yes. be an absolute bummer if you had an open heart surgery and it didn't fix the problem so i totally respect that they they just they need as much information as possible and right. still it is it is hard to put our gut feelings into data you're right it is but (laughs) i was able to be like okay when i run when i get my heart rate up to here i start to feel dizzy and i'm in shape like i should not be feeling dizzy Mm -hmm. you know i I was always wondering how come after i go on a run i'm feeling dizzy like when i'm fully it was just honest right so you know keeping all those data points i mean unfortunately I had, you know, when I had unroofing surgery, it did not fix my vasospasms, which we thought it would, but they're getting better. What I realized through this whole healing process post-surgery was vasospasms have a lot more to do with just your heart. I mean, they really are about the whole biochemistry of your body. Mm -hmm. And also, it's just the whole biochemistry of your body, like your body has a memory and it's, I was working with therapists and acupuncture (laughs) to really go back through and retrain my body because my body was like auto response of okay we have to have our anxiety is going to be raised now because there's a heart event but uh, so it's been actually taking me to do a lot of like therapeutical retraining of my body i don't take any anxiety medication they wouldn't give them to me when i wanted them but 
And that was good because I didn't want that to be a crutch either. Um, so it's just been a lot of therapy, a lot of meditation. I actually go to a support group for people with potentially life-threatening illnesses. So a lot of mm-hmm. cancer patients, heart patients, and that has been incredibly helpful. So I think if you can find a support group and even in the cancer community, it was advocating for themselves to get their right. diagnosis. I mean, it, this is, it does, it's not just from heart disease. It's, it goes across any, if you feel something's right in your body, it's not. Right. And I think that's where social, you know, social media has been so helpful with a Facebook support group, but whatever for listeners today, no matter what condition you're struggling with, I bet you, you know, a hundred dollars, I'll give you a hundred dollars if you don't find the support group for you. I am amazed at the amount of different heart support groups I'm a part of on Facebook and then all the hashtags you can follow on Instagram. I'm not a TikToker. Maybe I need to become one, but (laughs) I'm sure that there are people on TikTok who are also sharing their story. I mean, that's why I started this podcast, because even though I have such a wonderful network here and a loving husband and my dad and my stepmom have been amazing. It still can be a lonely process because heart surgery is so personal. It's touching your soul. It touches your essence. And it does. It's, it's hard to find comfort unless like I just talking to you over video today, even though this is the first time we've met, like, Oh, yay. I have another heart buddy. Like you, we just get each other, right? Someone who gets it. Yes. And that's what I want for listeners for this podcast. I, I, There's just so much you can gain from knowing you're not alone, even if you're just listening to another story. And I right. truly believe it does help in the healing because if you have hope, your body just seems to relax a little bit yes. and then it can like heal more efficiently. Yes. And you know, then that's why Women Heart was founded was we wanted, we call it sister support and sister match, where if you are a woman with heart disease, we want to support you and we want to get you a heart sister. Um, You know, we do red scarves, hearts, we call it heart scarves. We send out, we do red bags of courage. We can't really go into the hospitals. Not all hospitals let us go in anymore because they HIPAA laws and that kind of thing. But, you know, we have a sister match. So Women Heart has been a great support for me. I have, I mean, I thought I had a you know, a, a crazy story, but there is this one woman that I was in my class with who had cardiac arrest and was flatlined for 50 minutes and they continued to do CPR on her and the, the, the paramedics, you know, they were going to call it in, in the fire department and there, her father, her, not her father, her husband said, don't, this woman's a fighter. She's coming back. Lo and behold, she came back. And that woman is a pistol. <laughs> so, wow. So you need to have people fighting for you as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And great segue. I, I want you to tell us more about Women Heart. And so, Michelle, what is your, your role with Women Heart exactly? So I'm a community educator. So I offer education to, you know, whatever community is out there. I am really talking about women, heart disease, heart disease prevention, how to recognize signs of a heart attack or different types of heart disease and really get women who have heart disease issue or maybe live with somebody with heart disease or are at risk of heart disease. 
the resources they need, get them matched up with a sister, with a group. You know, we do have community groups, you know, throughout the country and get them a part of that so that they can get the resources and education and support that they need. Because that is incredible. Living with heart disease, like you said, it's a lonely, it can be a very lonely and isolating process. Your family, even though they see you go through it, they can't really relate to what you're going through. But those women in Women Heart, they can because they've all been through it and they're all living with heart disease. You know, when I was going to the symposium, I said, you know, I don't know. I'm afraid to get on the plane. I might have a heart episode. They're like, if you have one here, it's okay. At least everybody, somebody has one once here because this is what living with heart disease is all about. So I was about to go to a conference with women where I knew that I was going to be taken care of if I had a heart issue. And I was at the Mayo Clinic, so I was going to be okay. But it is an amazing organization. It's run run by an amazing CEO. Um, You know, it's all women. And it's just a fabulous organization. And it's, yeah, Women Heart, www.womenheart.org. And if anybody wanted to be a part of it or look for a sister to help a sister match, you know, whatever part of the country you're in, you know, you can email me. I can help get you connected. So is that your full-time job? No, it's a that's volunteer. That's my volunteer. One, that's one of my volunteer positions. My full-time <laughs> job is I, I work in the natural food industry. So I, um, I work in for a, or, an organic dairy company and all pasture-raised organic dairy, just absolutely wonderful natural product. One of the things that when I first got involved, you know, in helping educate people was I wanted to teach people how to eat for heart disease because when I was in my cardiac rehab class, yeah, mm-hmm. a, lot, a lot of people did not know how to eat healthy. They didn't know what choices to make. And it made me really sad because I'm so food centric. I've been in the food industry mm-hmm. for years. We're all about connecting and sharing food. And, and so I did have a page called The Happy Heart. I no longer have that. I will probably start that again. I went off Facebook for, you know, almost a year and a half and now I'm back on. But so I'm trying to start restart all my pages and everything. But my full time job is really just advocating for organic dairy, getting better for you dairy that's better for the heart (laughs) and do stores all across the country. Incredible, Michelle. And lastly, I also know that you're a mom. Mm hmm. Yeah. So here you are being a mom and managing your heart condition. And just I want to normalize that for other listeners, other women who are mom, friend, coworker, volunteer and managing heart symptoms like it's it's, you know, juggling all the time. It is. Tell us what that's like. Well, one of the reasons I pushed so hard and advocated for myself so hard was because I am a single mom. You know, my daughter needed a mom. You know, she needed me to be alive. And I'll never forget when she was there during my open heart surgery and seeing her for the first time and how that affected her because it does affect the kids as well. But, you know, my daughter's well, well versed in heart disease. She knows if mommy's having a vasospasm, she knows what to do. You know, she even gets my nitroglycerin for me sometimes. You know, she really knows how to take care of me if I have those situations, you know, if I'm having it, what we call an episode. It's been very hard on her. So helping kids manage through your heart disease is really important as well. But we definitely, you know, she's a kid that's grown up with a mom who's sick and has had a life-threatening illness. And so that's, been, that's actually been really hard on her, but we are working through it. And she's also had her own therapy to be able to cope with having a mom with a life-threatening illness and what that's like. 
Mm-hmm. That is really important. And I therapy for everyone involved, I think, is very important. You know, it is. It really is. And it's really helped us both. And yeah, I can say I Get your kids into, you know, if you're a mom out there or a father, you're dealing with, you know, heart disease, making sure your children have support because it's very scary. My daughter always thought she was going to lose me and Mm. letting them know that their feelings are real and what they're going through is real and that their feelings are okay. And helping them work through those anxieties is really important. Wise advice. Michelle, thank you so much for coming on to the Heart Chamber. I, I feel like I've I've made a new friend. Yes. I can tell that you are doing great things for Women Heart, and I appreciate your willingness to share your story. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, and thank you for letting me share about Women Heart and share my story. And I hope everybody who is suffering out there or just starting their journey with their diagnosis gets the support and the help that they need and always here to help. So Mm -hmm. thank you. Thank you. And that's the show for today. Thank you for spending part of your day with me. The Heart Chamber exists because of you. If you find value in this podcast, consider donating to this cause. Go to theheartchamberpodcast.com and go to the donate link. And hey, while you're there, feel free to leave me a voicemail. I want to hear from you. Lastly, don't forget to leave a review and make sure you subscribe so you never miss another Tuesday edition of The Heart Chamber. Thanks again. Have a great week. And I'll be back next week with more stories of open heart surgery and recovery.